Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Hawaii is the most recent of the 50 United States to join the Union. It's also a tropical volcanic archipelago more than 3,000 kilometers from North America, which, to put it mildly, sets it apart from the other states in many ways. So how did an independent Polynesian kingdom in the middle of the Pacific end up a part of the Union, and what happened to its monarchy? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Seraph Downey. That's me. I'm that person. Hello. Uh, and it's been a while since we did one of these, so I might be a little rusty. This is already the second take on the intro, but that's fine. Uh, and I figured if it's going to be back after a little while, who better to do it than my very first guest? That's uh, me again. So Yay. thank you for joining me. I'm, I'm really excited to, to be doing this one with you. And uh, our topic for today is the Kingdom of Hawaii. Are you at all familiar with Hawaiian history? I've seen Moana. <laughs> I'll, I'll mark that as a no. And I have, I have like a functional understanding sure. of, of how people end up in the middle of the Pacific. Okay. Well, that's, um, that's a start. But that's about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that's where I would want to start with it because I, I think it's a, it's sort of a, a natural... Yeah, like how do you get to, there? Yeah, how how do people end up in in Hawaii? It's in it's kind of in the middle of the no, uh, in the middle of nowhere. It seems like, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, we're talking about a group of people um, known as like Austronesian speaking peoples. So it's more of a linguistic group than it is like a you know an ethnic group or anything like that. But that's the best way we have of tracking these movements because they are so old and because these people spread so far over thousands of years. Um, but people speaking Austronesian languages started spreading from Southeast Asia um, more than 5,000 years ago. So, you know, if you, if you had to put a spot on the map where we're talking about as like a, a source for all of this, we might be kind of leaning sort of Vietnam area-ish. Yeah, but that's my, my guess would have been like Vietnam, Thailand, that kind of... Yeah, exactly. But like even that, it's it's so long ago, it doesn't really have any functional meaning other than kind of orienting people on a on a map, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of the uh, initial movements start when 
there's even older movements that, that started uh, during the previous ice age when the sea levels were much lower. So places like Borneo, uh, Sumatra, New Guinea, Australia, those larger masses were populated when um, that whole chain of, of islands in Oceania was much uh, much more exposed. There was much more land there, and there was a lot more capability of, of walking or crossing uh, much smaller distances by sea. Sure. But when we get to about 5,000 years ago or so, Austronesian sailors uh, start settling smaller chains over you know different phases of time. And these are people who are going to be navigating by uh, ocean currents, by following uh, seabirds, things like that. Um, this is about the only thing that Moana might help you out with a little bit. But mm -hmm. they're very sophisticated uh, navigators. Um, the, the boats that they're using, the uh, the methods that they're using to find these places are, are extremely sophisticated. And there's a, there's a long tradition of uh, knowledge being passed down from person to person orally about, uh, you know, patterns of stars, patterns of uh, uh, ocean currents, things like that to get from these places or to get from one place to another. And, you know, we're talking about the first ones or some of the earliest ones uh, populating Southeast Asia. So uh, the Philippines or some of the smaller islands between, uh, you know, the Asian continent and Australia, right? After that, you get into... Uh, people discovering and, and settling on uh, or in Melanesia, which is like the Solomon Islands, uh, Fiji, for example, um, Vanuatu, so, so sort of that more southern chain of, of very small islands. Uh, yeah. After that, you get people kind of further north into uh, Guam, uh, the Marshall Islands, that kind of area. A lot of people indigenous to Madagascar are actually part of this movement, so they do move west as well as east. No, oh, interesting. Never really considered that, but it makes just as much sense. Sure, why not? What's stopping them, right? Yeah. And then, and then uh, finally, sort of the last wave is when we're talking about uh, Polynesia uh, as well as New Zealand. So uh, those, those are relatively contemporaneous moves that are happening. And so you have people traveling over like very long distances. And it's important to understand as well that it's not just, you know, people get on a boat and they never really return, right? Like they end up in Hawaii and nobody ever hears from them again. There is trade between uh, these various societies. Um, it's not super frequent. It's, it's you know, kind of sporadic, but like they are still within, you know, still in contact with each other, right? It's just a matter of kind of broadening a network rather than sort of sending out one time, you know, single direction feelers and, and then people ending up there and staying there. Yeah. So these Austronesian cultures are uh, very diverse and very diffuse because they're they're so far apart and because they are isolated. Um, but there are some common language and core cultural attributes happening there. Um, so yeah, that that exchange will continue for a long time. For Hawaii specifically, we're talking about. Uh, the first settlers uh, ending up there between, we think at our best guess, between the 10th and 13th century CE. So this really isn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, that's it's a big, big, uh, big jump from 5,000 years ago. Yeah, and that jump is from those phases that we talked about, right? Like this isn't this isn't just all of a sudden five thousand years ago. There's there's a, a, an outwards explosion, right? Yeah, it's been um, a like a steady progress. Sure, and it's probably a couple hundred years between the discovery of Hawaii by these Polynesian or Austronesian cultures and uh, the actual settlement of it. 
you know, sure. you don't just kind of pack everything up and go. Uh, they had to kind of explore the place first. But yeah, we're, we're really talking about, a, a you know, in the grand scheme of things, relatively recent settlement there. Hawaii is, you know, it's if, if you're not familiar, it's it's eight major islands, lots of smaller islands. It's mostly volcanic and it ends up being a really good candidate for these seafaring uh, cultures because it's it's extremely um, rich in natural resources, right? It's excellent farmland because of all the volcanic activity. There's lots of uh, like vegetation. There's lots of uh, lots of fish. It's a really easy place to make a living. Makes sense. Pack up some seeds, bring your sticks, put some string on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and you know, it, it ends up being a, a pretty prosperous place as, uh, you know, even in the in the sort of context of these uh, Austronesian societies. Right now, it is a little bit further, but that's OK. There's a there are Hawaiian legends of um, what they call Menehune, which are the people who lived there before that are probably mostly apocryphal. Okay. Um, we don't have any direct evidence, uh, you know, archaeological evidence or anything like that. A lot of the stories about them are that they're, you know, very small people or things like that. So it's almost certainly legendary. But that being said, I do think it's worth pointing out um, that, like, while I don't think this particular one has much merit to it, you kind of discount the oral traditions of Austronesian peoples at your peril because. Um, it is it is wild how often these stories end up being either directly true or having a very clear kind of uh, core truth uh, at the center of them. And uh, yeah, people have been dismissing those stories for a long time only to find out that, in fact, they are very, very accurate. So as That's I said, interesting. this one I don't think is anything necessarily, but it's it's just something worth noting, I think. Um, the settlers who come there bring breadfruit with them, coconuts, bananas, uh, chickens, pigs, dogs, uh, sugarcane. Uh, like it's it's a pretty you know they have like a a pretty good diet going. They have a pretty broad agricultural base going. Sure. Um, life on Hawaii seems pretty good for the most part, as far as I can tell. Um, just a quick note on uh, Hawaiian, uh, like the language. Um, I'm not going to be good at it. <laughs> I, I've I've looked up a couple of pronunciation guides. I've listened to a couple of them. It's I, I find it really really challenging. So I, I apologize in advance for all of the many many mistakes that I'm going to make uh, in the course of this this podcast. But um, I, I, I I am aware that I'm extremely deficient in this in this uh, in this arena. So um, yeah, it's it's not going to be great. But uh, I will be doing my best. When are you gonna When are you gonna become a polyglot so you can just get these right every time, man? Honestly, it's <laughs> get to look, it. look, I have standards over here at HI 101. I'm trying to do my best. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Just go to polyglot school. You'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. That um, do the do the uh, what is it? The the yeah, do one of those CIA intentions of language courses where they yeah, they learn a language in 16 weeks or whatever. No problem. Yeah, you Anybody just can that get a, into one of those. Do that a couple times. And there you go. You speak all the languages on Earth. <laughs> it's just that easy. So simple. Um, so by the time you get to uh, 1300 uh, CE, something really interesting happens in Hawaii. And I'm just going to kind of toss this out there and we'll let it simmer a little bit. It's not, it's not going to go anywhere. It's just a really interesting fact. 
by 1300 CE, um, sweet potatoes show up in Hawaii. Okay. Do you know where sweet potatoes are native to? No, I do not. South America. Huh. Hmm. It's a weird hmm. time for them to show up there. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. I mean, yeah, and I mean, the, the, the real, the actual discussion around that is like, well, sweet potatoes do float, you know, sure. could, you know, could, could, uh, ocean, uh, you know, ocean birds carry, uh, you know, enough bits of sweet potato across, you know, in digestive systems or whatever to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But like, I feel like at a certain point, it's kind of like, well, they did sail all the way to Hawaii. Yeah, right. They got to Hawaii. Like, what's stopping them from going a little bit further the other way? And by a little bit, I mean a lot bit, but still. <laughs> yeah, and especially if you look at where, like, Fiji is on a map or, um, you know, Easter Island, places like that, Vanuatu. Um, like, it's it's not it's not much further to South America at that point. It's, right? it's pretty close. You're almost um, there. <laughs> You're almost there. Uh, anyway, I, like I said, I'm not going any further with that because I really don't have any evidence of anything, but I think it is worth pointing out um, just sort of in that same vein of like the the uh, level of, of trade network that's happening um, in the Pacific Ocean at this very early time or what we would consider an early time for it. Society generally is divided into uh, four classes. Uh, and this, this becomes a little bit relevant later. That's why I'm bringing it up now. There's the Ali'i, which is the chief class. And this is sort of a nobility slash, yeah, like, I guess, but, but like an, in a divinely appointed way, uh, noble class. Um, they're the ones who are responsible for managing the land. And there's a very, um, you know, it's a similar conception of land stewardship as you might see with other indigenous cultures where it's not a matter of land ownership. It's a matter of the land uh, essentially having um, rights of its own, life of its own uh, yeah. in their belief system. And it's up to the elite to make sure that that is properly preserved and protected. Um, then you'll have the uh, kahuna class, the priest class. Um, but that's like a pretty broad definition. Like, I, I don't want you to think of it just as like a, like in, in terms of like a, an efficient or like a, um, like a devotee, like it's also like professionals, right? So, um, you know, when you get further on, it's like lawyers are part of the kahuna class or, um, politicians or, uh, you know, it's other like sort of, uh, administrative, like a professional class. Okay, interesting. Then you got the uh, the Maka Ainana, which is the commoners, and these people owe tribute to the Ali'i and Kahuna classes. So, sort of peasants, I guess, if we want to fit it into that framework. Mm -hmm. They will work the land, they'll be given allotments of land, but they don't own the land, and they'll owe part of what they work on their land to the people owning the land. Uh, and then uh, as well to the to the priest class for you know being priests um yeah. and then finally you have the uh kaua which is the servants uh slaves outcasts um these are kind of the the, the lowest caste of of uh, society and they'll be used uh, like used as sacrifices they're uh going to have the worst jobs things like that yeah we're going to jump ahead a little bit to 1778 when, um, as many of these stories begin, uh, a British explorer shows up and ruins everything. Fucking Britain. Every time. 
1778, Captain James Cook. Oh, uh, yeah, we've heard of this. Oh, yeah. You know what? To the, to the point where when I was doing research on this, I was wondering if at some point I should just do an episode on James Cook. <laughs> he's, he's that much of a... like. There, it, it was to the point where I was like, man, I feel like there's three or four people who are just big enough jerks that I could probably make just like a series of them. And I, I've shelved that for now, but like he <laughs> would be a prime candidate. Yeah, the big jackasses of history. Yeah, You've already yeah, done basically. episode one. Yeah, yeah, exactly, with uh, with Columbus. But yeah, Cook shows up. He is on a multi-year miss- mission to explore all of the Pacific. And to put some of this in context, this is like peak um, East India Company sort of years, right? Where basically sure. a British person shows up on an island, plants a flag, and then whatever spices happen to grow there now belong to Britain. Um, you know, the usual stuff. Mm-hmm. He comes across Hawaii in 1778, names them the Sandwich Islands, I think after the Earl. And, you know, it, it's its first European contact for uh, Hawaiians and initially, surprisingly, quite friendly, actually. There's um, some, you know, reasonable attempts at communication. There's some trade. Um, especially there, there's some there's some speculation that there are some parallels with uh cook's uh arrival and a hawaiian god named lono who's sort of a god of uh prosperity um it just it, you know weather patterns when he shows up and some of the things that he offers to them things like that um you know i i, I always kind of hesitate to ascribe too much to some of that stuff like you get a lot of that with like the the um aztecs as well right yeah uh and and uh, i don't know maybe maybe not um but like there there is definitely a little bit of comparison made contemporaneously to uh to lono when uh cook arrives and so it's very very friendly at first but then you know as as these things always go um relations sh- relations sour really quickly um in in 1779 cook is back for a second visit and they go ahead and they need wood for some repairs right big ship you need wood whatever Mm -hmm. um they do go ahead and cut wood from uh from sacred trees in burial grounds oh that's fine i'm sure no one will mind and this is one of those ones where it's like, okay, well, he's not even necessarily being like openly hostile, I suppose. Yeah, like, just this is this is an understandable mistake to make. Now, it would have been nice if he had talked to somebody first, but uh, okay. There's trees. I need trees. I'm a, yeah. I'm a I'm a D tree. The place. Basically, basically, um, the Hawaiians are extremely upset, which is also very very understandable and they um they ended up stealing a a cutter from uh from cook uh, like a like a small a small ish boat so it'd be like a rowboat that you come to shore with yeah like 30 people in it kind of thing and rather than sorry sort of going like okay let's talk this out and figure out what's going on um cook decides to retaliate by trying to kidnap the ali'i of the main like the biggest island like the island of hawaii mm-hmm. at this point hawaii is not unified you have different ali'is in different areas sure this guy is one of the most important uh his, his name is uh Kalaniopu, and tries to kidnap him doesn't go with that many men which is probably a bad call yeah and i love when <laughs> things don't work out for the british it's my favorite 
I, I mean, you, you, you love to see it. Um, <laughs> truly. Truly. Some of, uh, some of life's few but great joys. <laughs> um well the, long story short the villagers kill cook yay uh as well as several others and you know it's it's this whole big thing the europeans want to retaliate but there's not enough of them um cook's voyages continue on whatever without him and uh yeah that's that's sort of the end of of james cook in hawaii um also in general <laughs> Also in general. <laughs> and I believe, I could be mistaken here, but I do believe there is a monument on the beach where Cook was killed. Yeah, I'm looking at a map of Hawaii now, and there's like a, it looks like there's like a city or a town named after him. So There is, but there is also a monument oh, where yeah. he was killed, specifically where he was killed, yeah. Captain James Cook Monument. <laughs> yep. Amazing. There we go. Despite the uh, the unfortunate end that he came to, he's not the last European to show up there, right? Sigh. Other European traders do show up looking to, you know. Well, I mean, with these islands, you never know what you're going to get, right? Because yeah. they're generally um, underdeveloped compared to Europe, and you might just show up at an island and they're just sitting on piles of gold and don't really do much with it. Mm-hmm. Or they might have a spice that nobody's tried. Or they might like there's there's so many options. There's so many options of ways that this be, could be really really lucrative for traders. Plus, Hawaii is a really beautiful place. I would also like to visit. Isn't like Hawaiian salt like a thing? Does that come into play here? Hawaiian salt? I don't know. Yeah, it's like a it's a red salt. It's uh... isn't that Himalayan salt? No, that's pink. Okay, uh, then then there is a then there is another color of salt that I was unaware of yeah i'll believe you on it i i wouldn't be surprised I'm, at all people go crazy for their different salts yeah right exactly they yeah i'm looking at it here it's uh red uh oh god now i'm gonna fail uh alai salt okay uh it's like a thing there we go um i don't know that these traders were looking for salt i feel like the colored salt thing is a relatively recent uh it's very obsession. possible obsession i think is fair uh yeah but but in any case yeah there's there's always stuff to try out um and with, with these traders there's an introduction of iron tools of guns um there's also uh, an introduction of european pathogens mm-hmm. yeah well here we go here we go and i mean every time well you know and and I think there's a I think there's a big difference between European traders showing up and happening to be carrying pathogens that they have no idea is going to be uh, devastating to the the local population versus like you know the yeah, full on like intentional uh, spread of of diseases that you see in North America at certain points in time right like those those are extremely different things from like a moral standpoint I suppose but at the same time it doesn't change the fact that it's going to be devastating for the population yeah. So, uh, we're still in the late 1700s here, and the Ali'i that was almost kidnapped by James Cook, uh, but wasn't, uh, Kalaniopu, was, uh, he died in 1782. And he leaves, uh, he leaves his land to his son, uh, Kiwalo. And when, when things pass, like, it's not a, a perfect, like, primogeniture sort of, like, it's always passed to the first son thing. Sometimes sure. responsibilities are split up a little bit. Um, specifically, the religious duties that go with um, the protection of the land, more from, like, a war standpoint than, like, a, an environmental stewardship standpoint, go to his nephew, a guy named uh, Kamehameha. And... <laughs> 
just looking at that uh, fella's name, I was like, hmm, Dragon Ball. Yeah, it, it shows up a couple places. It's a very powerful name. I can understand yeah. why people like it. It's it definitely, like, even when I heard it as a kid in Dragon Ball, I was like, well, that's a cool word. Sure. Yeah, no, it's 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 evocative. I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, we're going to be talking about several Kamehamehas uh, a bunch today. I see here he's the first. <laughs> well, then, well, then you know where this section is going to end up. There's not going to be a whole mm-hmm. lot of surprise for you. No. Um Several of the lesser Ali'i saw Kamehameha as fulfilling a prophecy that they had about a ruler unifying all of the Hawaiian islands. Um, the story goes that he had been able to lift something called the Naha Stone, which mm-hmm. is just like this gigantic boulder. You can also find photos of it. I, I mean, maybe he managed to lift it. It, it looks very, very large. Um if he did manage to lift it, I would also follow him if I saw that. <laughs> that is a powerful man. Yeah, right? Um, regardless of the actual rationales behind it, it may have been something significantly more mundane than that. Um, regardless of the reasons, war breaks out between Kamehameha and Kiwalo. Uh, and um, long story short, Kiwalo is defeated at the ba- Battle of uh, Moku Ohai in 1782. So even though the you know the the main leadership has passed to uh, Kiwalo, he's defeated by Kamehameha. He takes on all of those those leadership uh, roles, and that makes uh, Kamehameha in control of the vast majority of the island of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. This is kind of just the start of his ambition um you know once you've got some sort of prophecy behind your name about uniting all of the hawaiian islands that's a pretty good motivation i suppose as good as any uh to continue with some expansionistic behavior i think this could have easily ended up being a sort of local story to some extent um about a you know an interesting but maybe not super eventful uh power struggle sure Except that it is very much wrapped up in some of these European traders uh, that are beginning to uh, work with Hawaiians at the time. Mm-hmm. In 1789, so we're, we're a couple of years into the, the unification war here, an American schooner called the Fair American scuttles uh, on the shore of Hawaii after clashing with some locals. It's another cultural misunderstanding insensitivity type issue right but this this ship crashes but here's the thing it's full of cannons Mm. and kamehameha's forces capture the ship's cannons which are significantly more powerful than anything any of these european traders have been willing to sell them like they've been selling them muskets or whatever yeah but these are these are ship's cannons that'll that'll give you a bit of a military advantage Oh, 100%. There's also something just as valuable uh, on board that ship. Two Americans, the only, not not quite the only survivors, but among the very, very few survivors, two Americans named John Young and Isaac Davis. Basically, Kamehameha captures them and offers them not really much of a choice, but technically a choice of whether or not they want to help him with the invasion, teach him how to use these cannons properly, um, or the or, other thing, <laughs> or, or not, I guess. Uh, so they, so, they, so, they, des- 
So they decide to help him, it turns out. Do you and, really want to know what's behind door number two? I don't think you do. Yeah, whatever you want to say about Kamehameha I, he's, he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. That is That is for sure. With the tutelage of these two Americans on, you know, not only like how to use the cannons, but also like for the time, modern military tactics, right? Yeah. Uh, It's a pretty big leg up over his opponents. You know, these these people are sailors. They're not they're not Navy or anything like that. But the U.S. is not super long out of the Revolutionary War and just the activity of being a merchant sailor in in the late 18th century is going to give you some pretty uh pretty healthy understanding of how you know naval warfare works yeah so in 1790 kamehameha invades maui using these american cannons and it turns out to be very very successful like who would have guessed extremely successful um and so he starts kind of getting on a bit of a roll with taking over the rest of hawaii right while he's securing Maui, he has an opponent, uh, a, ga- a guy named uh, Keoa, who Keoa Kuahula? I don't know that one. I might just cut that one out. That was bad. Um, he starts a rebellion against Kamehameha on Hawaii uh, while he's oh. off on Maui, which smart. Well, 2020 seems ill-conceived, but like the thought is that it's going to take a long time to secure Maui and maybe he can secure enough support while Kamehameha is away to actually make a reasonable bid. He's not expecting Maui to be finished so quickly. Sure. Kiwa's forces camped out on uh, a volcano. <laughs> um, were essentially forced up the slope by uh, Kamehameha's forces as they were oh, returning. No. Oh no! <laughs> and a significant number. They weren't like pushed into the volcano. However, <laughs> it did start erupting, and a significant number of them were wiped out by volcanic fumes. Yikes! Which sounds like a really bad way to go to me. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure no, there's a lot of in, great ways, but not mm, into it. No, it's a very stinky death. <laughs> yeah, right. It's sulfur and shit. It's not good. Extremely unpleasant sounding, but it does drop the number of forces that. Kamehameha actually has to engage with mm-hmm. uh, significantly. Kamehameha comes back in 1791, kills Keoa, and uh, Hawaii is, you know, essentially secured for him, right? And I think it's important to, like, take a step back and look at what Kamehameha has achieved over the past couple of years in terms of just, like, military success and how it would appear to his enemies because stuff like you know securing maui quickly that's one thing things like half of his you know half of the rebellion being wiped out before he even gets there to engage like that starts creeping into like maybe there's something to this prophecy kind of territory yeah i was just gonna say like he i can see the the mythology wheels turning right yeah a hundred percent a great leader prophesized unite the nations mm-hmm. of Hawaii. I don't know what term they use, but you know. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally get it. But like, it's, it's, I, I, at this point would be thinking twice about considering opposing him, you know, like the, mm-hmm. maybe this is a guy we want on our side. Um, and I can't imagine that sort of thing is, is hurting his cause at all. 1795, Kamehameha returns to Maui to finish kind of cementing his hole, put out, putting out the last little bits of resistance there. 
And his final opponent then is uh, the elite EO of Oahu, uh, Kalani Kupale. And this is not a given. Like, th this is not, like, despite all the other successes, like, Oahu is very, very powerful at this point in time. Um, moreover, and after all, we just talked about the mythology stuff, this seems surprising, but moreover, uh, one of Kamehameha's uh, high-ranking commanders, a guy named Kaiana, Kai uh, defects to Oahu, mm -hmm. taking some of the troops with him. So there is a just epic sounding final stand on a mountaintop um you know battle between these two forces and uh uh the 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 defecting commander is killed um kalani kupale the the leader of oahu is uh captured and then sacrificed and that is basically the end of meaningful resistance to uh kamehameha's rule uh, in, in basically all of Hawaii. So, uh, Kauai, everyone else is just like, nah, yeah. Nope. Kauai, there's another part of Hawaii is, is ceded to him peacefully in 1810. They just go, you know what? No problem. You can have it. You know, there's, there's a couple of like assassination attempts that, um, uh, that fail. In fact, the, the American advisor, Isaac Davis, he's actually killed by, by poison when one of these, uh, assassination attempts go wrong and it kills mm. isaac davis instead of kamehameha but he pulls through he he lives through all of this stuff and oh, wow yeah he, he he ends up successful so you know it, it's not just about bringing like, like for for kamehameha it's not just about bringing all of hawaii under his dominion part of this needs to also be viewed through the lens of these advisors, John Young and Isaac Davis, as well as the broader context of these European contacts, right? Sure. When that ship breaks up on the shores of Hawaii and he gets, you know, these, these ships cannons to use in these battles, like to, to a certain extent, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, the amount that it jumps uh, Hawaiian technology, forward in terms of uh, you know the the ability to use gunpowder the tax tactics involved things like that kamehameha understands the duality of that which is number one this gives me an advantage over all other hawaiians number two if this is what a trading vessel is carrying mm -hmm. what would it look like to go up against a real european navy yeah and i think that's like very forward looking of him because he's not wrong he is not He's not wrong. So that the, that contact with with Americans and Europeans, you know, that that glimpse into what the rest of the world uh, is is currently facing. I was just uh, gonna say, like, you head west a little bit, and you might see some gunboat gunboat diplomacy happening oh, soon, uh, if not already. A hundred percent, absolutely. Like we're we're talking early eighteen hundreds. We are yeah. very very close to, um, you know. For example, uh, the occupation of uh, several ports in China over over who can sell some opium. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're we're not that far off from the establishment of the Raj. Like, there's there's a lot of sail into the port and do what we say, or we'll blast you with ships cannons. Um, very very near on the horizon. This is this is more or less contemporary policy for a lot of great powers. So 
you know, he's he's looking at all of this and going, well, maybe we should be looking at creating, for example, a constitutional monarchy by divine right modeled on Britain, because that is something. And, and he's seeing this with with reports from these other places. The British don't really respect uh, indigenous systems of rule. Yeah. To be linked up with world markets, for example, to start establishing like a monetary policy that interacts with these other powers. Um, where, for example, they can start trading sugar to the United States. They can start trading sandalwood to China, you know, in exchange for money that they can use to purchase uh, weapons, navies. Like it's it's clear to him that that's something that Hawaii is going to need if they have any chance of survival in a uh, an independent state, right? Yeah. So let's look at some of those international relations in, in in kind of the wider context, right? Because Hawaii is in a really interesting place both like geographically and geopolitically um, as sort of at a crossroads between these two systems of, of Britain and the United States. We talked a little bit about Britain already uh, in terms of, you know, where they're at with the, with, with the Pacific. We're really, we're still very much in that like old, uh, old fashioned colonialism, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of uh, flag planting. We have a lot of, you know, treaties within Europe to assert monopoly over certain geographic areas. So, you know, we're, we're still talking East India Company, as I mentioned. Uh, you know, you have the British fighting the Dutch in the in the the South Pacific over who gets access to which islands. You know, but we are coming up on a period of some dissolution of the East India Company as they get bogged down in India and. Mm-hmm defaulting some of this territory to direct control by the crown. So it's no longer necessarily the company that's ruling these places. It's uh, the Royal Navy itself that's coming in to sort of legislate some of these things. And that's made possible by just how powerful the Royal Navy is in the uh, 19th century, right? It is a ridiculously powerful engine of, of you know global power projection. And then you have the United States, and we are, you know, very, very early in the history of the United States. They're an aspiring power, but they're still very, very new, and they cannot step toe to toe with Britain at this point. Um, they are isolationist after, you know, as a result of these various wars that they've had with uh, Britain. Um, you know, we're we're just kind of talking about War of eighteen twelve right now, right? So they're yeah. they're really withdrawing from the whole European system of power as much as possible. We get into something known as the Monroe Doctrine. Are you familiar with this at all? I know it's a thing. I've heard the term before. Then this is a really good opportunity to talk about it a bit. The Monroe Doctrine itself won't actually be written until eighteen twenty three, but like the ideas that it rests on are absolutely in place at this point. So this, the, the idea of the Monroe Doctrine was we want to establish the American hemisphere, so basically the entire Western hemisphere, as uh, separate and free from European power. So there is sort of, um, you know, going along with uh, ideas of manifest destiny, this yep. self-appointment of the United States as a protector of oh, the Americas. God. Are <laughs> from European powers and European intervention. And a lot of this is centered on, you know, first off, uh, the the independence of the United States itself, right? And then on a general policy of 
you know, removal of, of, of uh, European power from the hemisphere, mainly uh, Spanish power as, mm. uh, you know, South America. And then, uh, you know, later on, the Caribbean starts expelling Spanish imperial power. This is the kind of thing that's really going to come to a head with the Spanish-American Wars in 1897, 1898, where the United States will interfere directly to, uh, you know, go to war with Spain in order to remove Spanish power from Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, but around that is this sort of idea, like a very new idea of an indirect type of imperialism, which is we don't owe these places anything we don't owe them you know protection necessarily uh we don't owe them rights we don't owe them you know uh representation in government however the united states has the uh authority and possibly even uh obligation uh to interfere in these places when things are happening that are contrary to uh the interests of the united states whether that be from a uh foreign policy point of view or whether it comes down to especially later on um even like the business interests of private americans i hate it <laughs> i hate it so much i mean you are you're in good company this is not a <laughs> This is not a, a universally beloved policy, yeah. um, but it's something that once you understand where they're coming from on, on this, like you, you need to put it in context of the the uh, the revolution and in the context of the colonial system that exists in the 19th century. Right. Yeah. You, you have this new colonialism from uh, Europe as though it's that much different than the old colonialism. But like you have a there's a renewed interest in overseas territories right i'm sure you've heard of the the scramble for africa right yes yeah it's it's this carving up of the of the continent as um these countries start establishing um colonies almost more for prestige than necessarily anything else like there is a there is a an economic component to it but it is sort of a you're not a real power if you don't have colonies kind of idea yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, India would be kind of core to that in in uh, in the British Empire. Uh, but you do see that from from all of these powers. Um, this is a this is an attempt for it's an attempt by the United States to maintain their independence from that and to protect themselves from that by basically saying outright, not only will we not tolerate attacks against the United States, we're also not going to tolerate a scramble for South America. And it starts off in this, you know, relatively speaking, ideologically pure place where it's like we are a nation that is founded on an independence movement from a European colony. And we will stand in solidarity with other independence movements from, uh, you know, uh, by European colonies. And that's absolutely happening in South America. But it changes over time to, you know, this whole we have a right to intervene, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And. You know, none of that uh, is to is to forgive any aspects of it. More to just sort of put it into a, a context of what exactly is going on in the world at this time that would even make them feel that they were justified or or uh, obligated to act in these ways. What's the internal logic, mm-hmm. even if externally it's kind of a bunch of bull- yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly it. So 
Hawaii is at this really interesting place, again, geographically, between these two geopolitical powers, right? It is in the Pacific, which is traditionally uh, the domain, uh, or at least in the, in the last couple of decades, of uh, British power. But it's sort of further west than most of the Pacific, and the United States considers it as essentially off the coast of the United States, it's a mean, long way off, but it's. Uh... <laughs> but it is closer to the United States than it is to uh, Asia. Yes. Yeah. If you're looking at uh, Oceania, there's probably a few islands. Oh yeah, of course. Like big islands, I mean, that are that are closer, but like not many. Not too many. You got like Fiji. Yeah. New Zealand's further away, and that's much further south. Yeah. Yeah. So both of these powers sort of feel like they have a claim to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Britain is doing this whole, well, we found it first, which is, you know, classic Britain. Um, also, we have Didn't a call. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I know that. Come on. I know you need to say it. I understand. I know you Believe know, me. and you know that I know that you know, but <laughs> Ugh, fine. Yes, carry on. So they're doing their thing. Britain be Britaining. And uh, the United States is doing their whole, you know, sphere of influence, uh, you know, the, the, the independence of the Americas and the rejection of the European hegemony and all of this stuff, right? And Hawaii is sitting there in the middle just trying to do their thing. It's like we, we, just, we just want all the islands here. Yeah. They just want their little chain of eight big ones and a bunch of small ones you know that's that's all they're really looking to do um there are you know other other powers are involving themselves in this like those aren't the only two that are uh, you know have designs on hawaii but like a lot of the other ones are not necessarily looking to bring hawaii under their umbrella so for example france uh, france is sending uh french missionaries uh to hawaii to try and uh, convert the populace to catholicism mm -hmm. um which again is is very much a part of this 19th century pacific uh sort of strategy by by europe it's this um it's very much you know white man's burden Rudyard kipling style we have this you know we have we have this this terrible responsibility to the rest of the world to civilize them blah 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 and Barf. uh yeah oh <laughs> no doubt absolutely but that's where they're coming from on this uh, again, what you said about internal logic recently. Yeah. Um, so you, you do have other powers that are kind of attempting a soft influence, but ultimately it's going to come down to uh, Britain and the United States. And there's an interesting wrinkle in all of this, which is that in 1794, and let me be very clear, we don't know a lot about this. I'm going to tell you a thing and you're going to ask for more information and I'm not going to know it. No. Nobody does. But in 1794, Kamehameha ceded the, the Hawaiian Islands to uh, Britain through uh, Captain George Vancouver of the Royal Navy. Why? <laughs> that's, the, that's the real question. And, and fundamentally, there's two camps here, right? There are... There's the group of people who think that what happened here is Kamehameha saw the writing on the wall that everybody was looking to get a piece of Hawaii. He saw the British as fundamentally the least uh, invasive 
and least harmful of the options that were presented to him at the time, um, as well as the most likely to actually provide any sort of protection for Hawaii. And therefore, let's just commit to somebody voluntarily that we think is the least worst option rather than being taken over by somebody worse. So that's one camp. Mm -hmm. The other camp is that there was a fundamental misunderstanding of what the agreement that was signed meant. And Kamehameha was under the impression that he was signing something much closer to a military alliance with Britain than wow. actual, actually any session of, of the islands to Britain. Yeah, that sounds more likely. <laughs> to me, yes, uh, I would agree. Um, but the problem is we don't have any records of the agreement. We have very, very little actual, like, direct evidence of any of this. So we have no idea what anybody was thinking in this, in yeah. this arrangement. Speculation um, mostly or entirely. Entirely. Yeah. Captain Vancouver actually had a really good reputation as, you know, for, for a Royal Navy officer of, of being fair to, uh, indigenous leaders. Like he, he was very friendly with the Hawaiians. He, he respected them greatly. Um, that doesn't mean that he couldn't have pulled some, like very, very, very greasy stuff on them. But um, it would seem a little bit of out, out, out of keeping uh, with the rest of his his dealings. Um, sure. So, I, like, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, on paper, Hawaii became part of the British Empire in 1794. And basically all that actually comes of that is that they're presented with a Union Jack to fly and more or less nothing else. Hmm. So they're not given any sort of formal standing in the government. They're not like it's it's a functionally a colony, but it doesn't have like a British governor. Like it's more or less ceremonial if uh, if that's what's actually happened here. Interesting. Yeah. Kamehameha the first dies in eighteen nineteen, and uh, he left his uh, kingdom to. Actually, one of his younger sons uh, named uh, Liho Liho, and uh, he would end up going by Kamehameha II. Mm -hmm. Because he was underage, the kingdom is really actually run by uh, his mother, um, Kamehameha I's uh, wife, or one of his wives, as as the regent. And the the, the the islands go through a really interesting cultural change at this point in time. There's kind of a simultaneous uh, rejection of um, traditional Hawaiian culture and uh, an acceptance of a stronger acceptance of European culture, specifically religious culture. So uh, her name is uh, Ka'ahumanu, and Ka'ahumanu ends up uh, very, very like one of the first things that she does is um, eliminating as many uh, cultural taboos as she possibly could. Uh, these are called kapu. And Hawaiian culture is like a, it, it, or traditional Hawaiian culture was this sort of uh, spider web of different prohibitions and taboos, right? So like many of them are based on those four different castes that we talked about. Yeah. Um, many of them are based on gender. Many are based on like the time of year or different religious festivals or uh, monumentous occasions, things like that. And it's, it's a really, it, it was, it was very, very complex. Um, 
I, I, I sometimes see it referred to as, as restrictive and in, you know, certain very like literal senses it, it is, but I mean, I, I don't know, you get into some cultural, um, or ethnocentric stuff when, when you get super judgmental about this stuff. So, yeah, but yeah, like, uh, for example, the, the, there, there was a prohibition on, uh, the genders eating together. So there were, there were people would eat communally, but there would be a, a hall for the men and the hall for the women. The food was cooked separately. Uh, the people ate separately. A lot of foods were also restricted for women. Uh, pork, uh, coconut, uh, most varieties of banana, um, certain fish. Um, I think red foods, just anything red, uh, like very, very restrictive in that sense. Okay. And then of, of course, which, which cast you belong to will, will have uh, further restrictions on these things. Sure. When Kamehameha died, there is a traditional breaking of the taboos when the king dies as sort of a symbolic time of chaos okay because yeah. of the loss and then the new king will come and reassert the kapu as sort of a, a again a, a ceremonial um restoration of order right yeah. so the king will leave or the, the new king will leave for a week and there's this period uh it's called ainoa which is uh free eating is mm -hmm. the is the the translation where uh you know it doesn't matter what cast you're from your your gender any of that stuff anyone can have any of these foods anyone can go wherever all of that stuff is is basically on the table um I, i'm sure with some very specific you know some of the the most uh you know important uh uh kapu still in place um, sure. but you know it's it's a much uh freer time so kamehameha ii leaves when his father dies there's the period of ainoa and normally he would come back after one week and reestablish the kapu. When he got back, uh, his mother basically said that this time the kapu are not going to be reestablished. She decided that it was detrimental to uh, Hawaiian culture mm -hmm. uh, to have so many restrictions in place, and she felt that it was the the right path forward for for the people to not reassert the kapu. You take this take this opportunity. Uh, leave you know the rest of Hawaiian, uh, you know the rest of Hawaiian uh, time as Ainoa, no more kapu, and go forward. And the this was uh, Kamehameha was uh, the second was young and um, but, but and didn't have as much say as he might have normally, but he agreed to this. Mm -hmm. And they they demonstrate this to the people of uh, Hawaii by. Uh, publicly eating together the first night that he gets back and this is very like i know that sounds like not that big a deal other than like yeah the five like, minutes of, of explanation that i've given you but this I, is i i've 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 I, look i've been on the show before <laughs> i know that something that seems minor a probably isn't and b if you're giving me a big explanation of it it's gonna be important yeah and and sometimes it's very small things that trigger very big events right Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, this is very disruptive. A lot of people really embrace it. There are a lot of people who are very upset by it, and there is some minor unrest caused by all of this. But fundamentally, uh, this is the end of uh, at least the most restrictive version of uh, the Hawaiian religion. Mm -hmm. What you have happening at about the same time 
is the introduction of Christian missionaries to the islands from the United States. So they start showing up in big numbers in about 1820. The success of these missionaries is, I think, calculated would be fair to say. Because essentially what they're offering is education uh, to an extent that really Hawaii hadn't had previously, as well as, you know, access to the rest of the world in a way that wouldn't be available to non-Christians at the time. And the Ali'i class almost entirely ends up uh, converting to Protestantism uh, fairly shortly after these missionaries arrive. Wow. Again, as a fairly calculated move towards trying to bring Hawaii into a place where it's not as vulnerable to uh, Western powers as other uh, nations that they've been hearing about who they see themselves in. I get it, but it's just kind of sad to see a religion just kind of disappear. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But like the, again, the trade-off here is that Hawaiian gets a written language, which, which it did not have up until this time. Sure. Um, which is extremely useful. And I mean, uh, you know, Hawaii becomes literate very, very quickly. Like we're talking like 90% plus literacy by the second half of the 19th century. So within a couple of decades. Dang. This sort of, uh, like I said, this access to the rest of the world as a... Uh, Christian nation, it sort of, I, like, I know it seems, I, I guess the thing to understand is that a lot of the conquest of indigenous peoples and removal of their rights and their property at this point in time is being done under a philosophy that basically, when you really get down to it, says um, you're allowed to take stuff from people who aren't Christian. Yeah. Like from a legal standpoint, that is okay, and it is a it is another level of protection against that because they've yeah. seen what the Europeans it's, have done to other people. Definitely tactically sound. Mm-hmm. I just you know the part of me does that doesn't want to see the Hawaiian culture and the diversity that it could bring yeah. to the table. That's the part of me that's like sad that it's gone or leaving at this point in time. Well, and I think to a certain extent, that's why I'm defending it as hard as I am, because yeah. uh, because it does suck. And like, you don't want it to be for nothing, I guess. Uh, yeah. But at least is, they got something out of it. But still, but but it is it is hard. It, and and I mean, ultimately, like, you know, we know where we know where this whole story ends. Right. Like Hawaii does not remain independent. And and what I, <laughs> I, I think I think if anything, I think if anything, <laughs> didn't know. Sorry, I think if, I, had I, to. Think, I think if anything, uh, it makes these efforts that are like very clear eyed and very like um, measured and, and very deliberate that much more tragic because like we know that this is not like it's, it's a holding mechanism of anything. Yeah. Uh, it's not ultimately going to pay off. And that's that's possibly even sadder. Yeah. So, you know. Christianity is introduced to the island. The ruling class all all uh, uh, convert, and you know, again, yes, there is resistance. But like, once you get that sort of adoption at the top levels, you're going to see adoption throughout the society. Yeah. Um. Sure. So yeah, I, 
at the same time, you're seeing a big transformation in that, um, you know, we mentioned it briefly earlier, but the diseases introduced by Europeans are uh, killing a lot of Hawaiians, like a lot mm -hmm. of Hawaiians. We're talking, I, I saw in one spot that in, in the 1770s when Cook first arrived, we're talking like nearly half a million Hawaiians. I think it was about 450,000 or something like that. By the time you get to the 1850s or so, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, about 75,000. Oh, yeah. I hate disease. That's that's what happens when you have a, a population that is not like has zero resistance to. Uh, well, I mean, smallpox, smallpox, measles, uh, tuberculosis. Yep. That's the those are the three that are going to do you. In. It'll get you. Kamehameha himself, uh, the second, the one that we're talking about, uh, died of measles uh, during a visit to Britain in 1824. When did he take power? 1819. He was king for five years. Five years. It's not, that's rough. He really wanted to get close to Britain. He saw that alliance as valuable, uh, and he was hoping for protection. And he saw... Like his his advisor said, don't go. Basically, don't go to Britain. It's too far. It's too dangerous. He went anyway to try and get a an audience with the king to try and plead his case for how important uh, Hawaiian independence was. Uh, he never actually got it. He he died before he had the chance. Brutal. So Hawaii is left to uh, his younger brother, um, Kamehameha the third, and. Yeah, that's that's. It, there's a lot that happens in those five years there, right? Like it's 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 a it's a big shift in the direction of of Hawaii overall. We are going very very quickly down a path of, in order to survive, Hawaii needs to become more Western, and uh, I get it. I I understand the the decision there, but mm -hmm. as we've discussed at length, uh, it sucks. It does sucks. Why don't we take a break there? And when we come back, uh, we'll talk about how just how well this westernization is uh, going to work for Hawaii on the international stage. Mm, okay. Back on HI101 here with Seraph Downey. Hello. Hello. And we've been talking about... Um, a very difficult choice that Hawaii had to make in the early 19th century um, mm -hmm. in terms of reorienting towards a, uh, a more Western society in the hopes that it would uh, protect them from Western societies. How'd that work out for them? I'm sure it's going to be fine. <laughs> I mean, it you know, the trouble starts right away is, is really what it comes down to, right? Like it, it starts out, well, I mean, 1831. All of these ali'i have converted to Protestantism, right? Because it's Protestant missionaries that have come from the United States. France, as we discussed earlier, had been sending Catholic missionaries. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with how the Catholics and the Protestants feel about each other. I'm Irish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. Thank you for reminding. The, thank you for reminding the listeners that that, that was the joke. Go um, go listen to that episode. Oh. Oof. Yeah, that was a, that's a that's another laugh and a half. Um, that's putting it lightly. Yeah, so I mean, the 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 leadership decides to expel the Catholic missionaries. 
if you ask the leadership of Hawaii, the Catholic missionaries were being uh, subversive. They were being disruptive. Uh, they were causing trouble. If you ask the French, this is religious perse persecution and a complete affront to uh, the French people and their religion. You know, the usual. Yep. This results in, you know, in 1839, they dispatch a ship with a... Um, Captain Laplace, who, uh, who who's sent to Hawaii to, at the bare minimum, seek reparations and, if possible, uh, reinstate Catholic rights within Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Normal behavior. Kamehameha III agrees to pay thirty thousand, or sorry, twenty thousand uh, dollars in reparations uh, to guarantee Catholic rights within Hawaii. Um, they they had actually had some of their like civil liberties uh restricted um okay. after all of this but yeah those are those are supposed to be removed under something called the edict of toleration he also gives them a a new uh, land to build a new church on kind of thing just to diffuse the whole situation mm -hmm. but as generally minor as this is you know in the grand scheme of world history there is a really important lesson that's that's embedded in this which is that their relationship with Britain, be it allegiance or, you know, membership in the British uh, Empire, did absolutely nothing to protect them. A French vessel sailed into the Pacific and threatened to uh, open fire on their lands, their cities, their people, and the British did nothing. Fun. This, like, I, I don't know how you take that other than we're on our own, right? Yeah. Like, that's, 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 the, that's the takeaway here. We're on our own. Kamehameha's legacy, Kamehameha III, uh, his legacy in general is one of understanding that he's on his own and trying to figure out how best to navigate that scenario. Sure. And that starts with... You know, continuing to establish that, you know, the legitimacy of the type that European powers would need in order to give them any respect whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we have a population with a rapidly expanding uh, literacy. Kamehameha III starts putting into place uh, legal frameworks, right? A constitution. Um, he shifts the monarchy to a constitutional monarchy somewhat based on a british system so yeah there'll be a, a parliament put in place um you know sort of adopting that bicameral parliamentary system right house of representatives that's elected uh, a second house that is appointed you know a, a house of lords equivalency and try and basically make it as close to a monarchy as he could while still retaining the uh, traditional powers of the elite and found a really reasonable uh, example in the British system. Makes sense. Like, I, I, see the, I see the logic. Sure. And I mean, there's still going to be restrictions on, on you know, who can, who can vote in any elections and things like that. But like, this is the 19th century. Everybody had those restrictions. It's nothing you know, really all that notable. We are a long way from universal suffrage. Yeah. He also sends a, 
it's basically a diplomatic mission to various powers on in in this in this campaign to have european powers recognize the independence of hawaii this is a bold move uh european powers have never previously recognized the legitimacy and the independence of an indigenous non-european state mm-hmm. uh, he sends a guy named timoteo Ha'alil. Ha- man timoteo Ha'alilio. i don't think that one was good I don't think I'm going to do better, though, either. I apologize. But in any case, this diplomat goes out. He starts with the United States and December 19th, uh, 1842, manages to secure a promise of recognition of independence from U.S. President John Tyler. Mm. 17th of March, 1843, manages to get an audience with King Louis-Philippe of France and uh, secures his promise of a recognition of independence. Why? Why? Why are they? Why are they playing ball? There's a bit of a well. Number one, Timoteo is a really good diplomat. Number two, Hawaiian independence is a little bit of a cause celeb in uh, European circles. A what now? Uh, like a like a. There would have been an Instagram filter, you know. <laughs> Like it's just like I a popular, it's just like yeah, a popular yeah, yeah. social co- co- cause. Yeah. We talked about this with uh, Irish independence, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's another really good example. Sometimes causes just sort of pick up steam; they become popular in a way that others can struggle for years for the same sort of recognition. And there isn't always like a very very strong reason why or a single reason why. Um, in in Louis Philippe's case, uh, I do know that uh, the King of Belgium had a pretty significant uh, impact on his decision. Like the King of Belgium was like, you should, you should do this. It would be good. So like it's, it's things like that that play into it, right? Like it's very yeah. minor, but you know, with, with Hawaii, there is also one of the few things I can point to that is like, this is actually really unique and interesting other than the Christianity aspect, which I, I do think plays into this. But the other thing is what we talked about in terms of it being at this crossroads between American power and British power, right? Mm. And the British understand that they just failed to protect Hawaii in an international incident. Yeah. And that doesn't really look that good if they are recognizing or they're only willing to recognize Hawaii in the context of the British Empire, because what that shows is uh, an empire who is at its height of naval power um either unwilling or unable to defend some of its territory which is a terrible look yeah um the french are willing to do it because they don't want it to belong to the united states or to britain uh the u.s is doing it because they don't really have enough naval power to defend it militarily as part of their own territory anyway so it's to their advantage not to defend it we haven't talked a lot about u.s power in um in Hawaii yet and that's because it's all soft power they haven't really attempted to do anything militarily it's not the traditional sort of sail a gunboat around and, and threaten to blow things up type thing it's all economic it's all business stuff and for the United States 
they are looking at all of this and saying, well, like the best possible solution here is an independent Hawaii who continues to sell us sugar mainly. Um, and even that, like the sugar trade doesn't pick up for another couple of decades, really. But we want we want an independent Hawaii who we can do business with, but isn't actually part of the United States and isn't subjecting us to the type of tariffs that we would be subject subject to if it was British territory or French territory. Gotcha. So everyone has good reasons for it, but part of it is that like Hawaii is popular. You know, there there is there is an aspect of that to this as well. Finally, in April uh, April first of eighteen forty three, um, Lord Aberdeen of of the British Empire, on behalf of of Queen Victoria, who won't deign to meet with a uh, Hawaiian diplomat, uh, does uh, promise to recognize um, uh, Hawaiian independence. This is a very, very close thing because just a couple weeks before, on February 13th of 1843, a Captain George Pollitt of the Royal Navy sailed into uh, the harbor of Hawaii, uh, at, at Hawaii, and uh, demanded that Hawaii cede uh, and, and surrender completely to the United Kingdom. What? What? <laughs> so, I mean, in this era in the Pacific, you basically just have Royal Navy captains with a lot of latitude as to what they can or can't do, right? And you have this precedent of supposedly having ceded to Britain in uh, 1794 under Kamehameha I. Yeah. So it was kind of like it was kind of like from from his point of view, it was like, why haven't you been paying your taxes? Essentially, he took it upon himself to kind of reassert some of that that British control over the as he would have called it the Sandwich Islands. Um, weird timing, weird move. This. I think if anything shows just how near a miss um, this whole dipl- diplomatic mission was for Hawaii, because um, Paulette ends up basically controlling uh, Hawaii or, or holding Hawaii hostage for nearly six months until word gets back that uh, Victoria recognized their independence on April 1st. Yeah. It's such a near thing, and it, it like it's such a close call that Kamehameha the Third actually did surrender to Paulet. He did cede the Hawaiian Islands in the hopes that the mission that had already been sent would come back as successful and nullify that surrender. Damn. Did did it did it nullify it? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's crazy. Like that should have that, that could have been the end of things here. Yeah, could they could have just like, oh well, never mind. We got you. <laughs> and it completely justifies everything that, that uh, Kamehameha III is trying to do here. Yeah. So word gets back 31st of July and Paulette withdraws. And in November of that same year, 1843, uh, November 28th, there's a treaty drawn up. And again, this is like really just really just chew on this. There's a treaty drawn up between the United States, Britain and or sorry, between Britain and France. Uh, recognizing the independence of Hawaii. Hmm. Uh, just, just let that one simmer. Um, this is reckon, this is like a, this is like an independence day. This is like a holiday for, uh, Hawaii. They got what, like 50 years left. <laughs> yeah. You're not <laughs> off. You're not far <laughs> off at all. <sighs> the thing about Kamehameha's, uh, attempts to 
reform the legal system and sort of the organization of the society at large is that in order to understand what's going to best protect him from the Americans and the Europeans, he needs to understand what it is that they would actually be able to exploit about his society. And to do that, he needs to talk to Americans and Europeans. Mm. So he is taking a lot of advice from uh, Western advisors. And unsurprisingly, inevitably, this comes around to bite him. Uh, one of the other uh, methods that is used to um, strip indigenous peoples of their of their lands in this era is essentially the concept of having title to property, right? The concept of land ownership. Sure. It, it's not as widespread or as, as kind of uh, ingrained as, as sometimes we might feel that it is. A lot of cultures just do not have that. So you have essentially a legal defense of someone coming up saying, who owns this land? And, you know, the... The locals saying, uh, no what? one, what are you talking about? <laughs> what is, what is own land? <laughs> yeah. And, and like, especially consider some of the stuff that we talked about in terms of the, the cultural relationship yeah, the with the land, thing. right? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's just, a, it's an insane, per it's an insane question to ask a, a Hawaiian person even 50 years before this. Yeah. Um, because that is a reasonable, uh, legal defense under Western uh, systems, um, they the, these these advisors suggest that they institute a formal land title system uh, before someone has the chance to use it against them. Mm. This is considered a good thing from a couple of of different perspectives. Uh, um, number one. It uh, helps to sort of redistribute land in a slightly more equitable way. Um, before before all of this, uh, we didn't talk about it a lot, but like the the system that was used for like land uh, allocation, if you were um, sort of on one of the one of the lower castes, you would be granted land by an ali'i who was granted land by a higher ali'i and all the way up sort of thing, right? Yeah. Um, and and this was more of a like a license almost than it was yeah. any sort of ownership. You're currently in charge of keeping this land safe yeah. and, you know, literally being its steward. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's that's how they had been working it it previously and and so but but people weren't like you could just as easily have your land taken away from you if uh, I don't know for example you had been on the losing side of a of a rebellion or something like that uh, even if the new elite just didn't like you mm -hmm. um, like this is the, that would be well within their power just to say you have no land now um, so there was a consideration of like well this could be more equitable than what we have currently. There was, you know, also the aspect of protecting against the legal challenge of no one owns this land, therefore I can take it. Um, and then, you know, there's this idea that sort of opening Hawaii up a little bit to private land ownership could help with, um, help make Hawaii a little bit more prosperous, right? Like uh, if people are able to accumulate wealth, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, uh, it is 1848. Yeah, it is 1848. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, this is known as the Great Mahele, uh, the, the redistribution of land. Mm -hmm. And at first, it's essentially doing what it's supposed to do. But then those advisors start kind of suggesting some 
mm, some things that I, I I don't know how they talked him into it, but that's okay. Uh, they did anyways. So the first one is the 1850 uh, Kuleana Act, which was essentially putting a limit on the amount of time Hawaiians had to claim their parcel of land. So essentially what they did was like a third of the land went to the crown, a third of the land went to um, other ali'i class uh, people, and then the other third was for everybody else. And you could petition the government to be given a deed for your land that you are currently working, and they would grant it to you. This uh, 1850 act basically said, okay, well, you only have so much more time to actually claim your land. And it also put some administrative fees in place that made it slightly more difficult. Uh, these two things had the combined results of uh, really poor uptake of actual land ownership by lower class Hawaiians. Mm -hmm. About a quarter of them actually claimed their land. <sighs> Well, I mean, I assume this policy did its job then. Well, I, I think so. Um, because the other thing that happens in 1850 is the Alien Land Ownership Act, which uh, gives uh, foreigners the legal right to hold land titles. Oh, geez. And look at all this land that the indigenous population wasn't able to claim for some reason. So anything that wasn't claimed would have gone back to... Uh, the crown. Sure. But the Alien Land Ownership Act was sold to Kamehameha III as a way to help with both uh, raising capital via land sales to foreigners, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they also were hoping that this would lead to an influx of labor. So keep in mind, all of these. Oh uh, my God, Hawaiians, I hate this so much. Right? <laughs> This is such a scam. It is. Make it hard right. for the poor people to, you know, own land and then sell the land that they should have owned to business owners and then convert the people you've just displaced from their land into laborers and mm. pay them that, nothing. Probably. That last bit isn't quite what's happening here. I understand why you're frustrated, believe me, but Ugh. that's not you, you you slightly misunderstood the last point. The population of Hawaii has dipped tremendously over the last several decades due to disease. Yeah. There is not a problem with the surviving indigenous Hawaiians uh to find uh meaningful work. There is a labor shortage based on like there are simply not enough people oh, alive. Oh, to import labor then? Yes. And the uh, ability to sell land to this imported labor, mainly from Southeast Asia, uh, basically opens the door to those people being able to afford any property whatsoever. It is, it is not an explicitly, uh, intentionally exploitative uh, policy. It is a pathway for uh, Chinese, Japanese, and Filipino migrant workers to build a life for themselves uh, when they've come to Hawaii to work because the companies that exist there, foreign or domestic, are paying good wages because no one is available to work. Mm. 
there 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 is a big problem with uh it's not quite, indigenous hawaiian not quite as evil as i had first thought but there there is a big problem with indigenous hawaiian displacement because what it means is that if you're outside of that window you would essentially have to buy back your own land yeah and that is uh, like clearly a problem yeah. don't get me wrong um but no the, specifically the uh the the opening of property to foreign buyers is pitched as a a just thing for these migrant workers mm. the real result of it though is that american companies are often the ones that end up buying land from the crown Kelsaprise. Mm-hmm. so uh we just you know it's that meme of the one guy tripping down the stairs and then the other guy surfing a rake down the stairs <laughs> yeah like we still up, end up with a with a rake in our face but it took longer to get there mm-hmm uh, I called this next section uh, Sugar and Gunboats. Okay, here we go. The first permanent sugar plantation is established in 1835. Uh, sugar cane had been in Hawaii for some time. It is a tropical region, um, but they're dabbling in all sorts of tropical you know, agriculture, right? Cash crops, coffee, things like that. Yep. The thing about the sugar plantations and the thing about American businesses in foreign countries at this point in time in general is that American owners tended to feel very, very entitled to, um, (laughs) you could probably just end it. They felt very, very entitled. Anyway, (laughs) I I was trying to soften the blow. Uh, you know, they, they were feeling very entitled to a say in local politics in a way that if you were to reverse the places, they would have been extremely offended by. Yeah. If you were an American owning a business in Hawaii, you felt that because you were, uh, well, I mean, it doesn't even matter why, you felt that you had a, a, a say in Hawaiian policy and politics, uh, or that you should be able to have one. And you were very upset when you didn't get that. These, these businessmen are the ones who are, to some extent, involved in... Uh, advising Kamehameha III in some of these policies, right? Like that's the, these these sugar plantation owners are the the pool from which he's drawing these advisors, which is why you're getting these uh, poison pill uh, policies being put in place. Yeah, it's it's not they don't have his best interests at heart necessarily. There's a couple of really big things that are happening with the United States in the 1840s, early 1850s that we should kind of keep an eye on here. Number one, we're looking at the California gold rush, which uh, displaces a lot of American citizens to the West Coast in a way that like it just wasn't populated before this. Like there were people there, but like not in nearly as many numbers before this uh migration to the west coast most americans who were sailing to hawaii were doing so from the east coast and sailing south and keep in mind there's no panama canal yet so sailing all the way around south america around cape hope uh and back up into the pacific it's it's restrictive Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of people making that journey now all of a sudden you have a substantial population on the west coast you have the development of infrastructure to move people from the east coast to the west coast uh, beginning to take shape and 
you now have people sailing from the west coast to Hawaii, making that journey a lot shorter, comparatively speaking, uh, and a lot more like there's a, there's a, there's a greater frequency of it, which brings down costs, right? Yeah. So it makes Hawaii a more attractive trade partner. The other thing, and honestly, this is very closely related, is that when you get to about 1850 or so, things really start falling apart with um, the relationship between uh, northern states and southern states on the issue of slavery. Mm-hmm. There was a very good chance that we had seen uh, that we would have seen the American Civil War start in about 1850 rather than 1860. It was only delayed by a decade or so by some significant concessions uh, made by uh, Washington to try and keep uh, slave states happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is being driven by the expansion west. Right? There's a massive question about you know is Texas a slave state or not? Is California a slave state or not? You know, like the the, the expansion over the 1840s, um, and you know, you have you have other expansion in there too, like the you have Mexican American War and things like that earlier. The the question over what an expanding America looks like from specifically a slavery perspective puts a ton of tension on uh, trade between states and. What that results in, in a very specific, we're getting into commodity stuff. Like this is this is ridiculous, but it matters. Most of the sugar that is grown in the continental United States is grown in like Louisiana and Florida, um, as far south as you can go. It makes sense. It's also not a lot. I don't know. The whole history of sugar in in the United States is really interesting. I could get off on a tangent on that for a long time. Um, there's there's a reason that they eat so much high fructose corn syrup uh but anyways yikes uh, well no okay well let's let's do this thing you can't grow sugar in the united states and beet sugar sucks yeah um so the best way to get sugar domestically is through corn it's still more expensive than importing sugarcane so what the united states does in general is put really high tariffs on sugar coming from outside of the country and really heavily subsidizes corn growth that then gets turned into yeah hfcs for uh processed foods it's a really weird really unique setup but it's specifically protectionist over sweeteners and we don't need it anymore so can we stop doing it please uh i have no say in that sorry that's that's within 20 years my bad Um, anyways, uh, sugar, it's, it's, you, you could, you could do a lot of work. I, honestly, I could probably do a, an episode just on sugar. Uh, it would be a very sad and very violent episode, but, uh, you could do it. It's just like tea, right? Sugar and tea. It's a lot like tea. <laughs> it's a lot like tea. There's a lot of these very basic, yeah, uh, commodities that could do a, a similar, similar story. Tea part two, sugar. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so anyways, you have this, this sugar that even if it's coming from international, so even if it's coming from the Caribbean is coming through Southern states. Mm -hmm. And so these states are putting like interstate tariffs on sugar. They're making transit of sugar much more difficult. They're rationing it, all sorts of stuff. Like the, the tensions in the 1850s in the United States are, um, sometimes a little understated. Like it gets kind of nasty. Uh, it's not outbreak, you know, it's not full on war for another decade, but it's, it's bad. Yeah. It gets bad enough that it becomes cheaper to buy Hawaiian sugar for northern states than it is uh, to try and deal with all of this nonsense coming from, you know, trade uh, sniping. 
Um, so it makes Hawaii much more important as a sugar producer. Mm. Why am I telling you all of this? <laughs> oh, I can, I can guess. The Hawaiian royalty sees Americans as an economic opportunity, right? They, they like, it's, it's so important, um, that they find something valuable to the rest of the world so that they can get the resources they need to protect themselves. It is not a place where they have the manufacturing capacity to, for example, create their own Navy, right? Like yeah. this is stuff they're going to have to buy. They need the money to buy it. Mm -hmm. it it's, it's as simple as that. And, you know, you, you have this, you have this weird tension where, the U.S. is seeing Hawaii as a crucial piece of their defense, right? Now that now that uh, California is is occupied, um, they sort of see it as like a, you know, it's a it's a buffer state essentially as far west as you can go in the American sphere of influence. Is the is sort of the U.S. foreign policy view on Hawaii, mm -hmm. and then Hawaii sees the United States as their best bet of selling cash crops to make enough money to develop and uh, defend themselves. So it's a relationship and it's a reciprocal relationship, but it's a tense one. It's very opportunistic on both sides. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it gets to the point where Kamehameha III, especially under these, these advisors, had been considering possibly some sort of annexation to the United States with like, you know, concessions for the continuation of the monarchy for example which you know I, I know you're sitting there going like that would never happen but like that's not yeah. necessarily what he's going to be hearing from american advisors right yeah. who are probably more interested in being annexed to the united states than they are in the preservation of hawaiian monarchy yeah he dies of a stroke in 1854 and uh when his successor kamehameha the fourth uh, comes into power, he puts a stop to those annexation talks. He is uh, interested in staying diplomatically close, but he's very worried about full-on annexation. And he hasn't been, like, he hasn't had these business people in his ear this entire time, right? Yeah. He'd actually been a, an opponent of some of these land ownership uh, changes that the Kamehameha III had made to the point where they had been pushed through Hawaiian Congress while he was out of town, so he couldn't speak against it. It was very tense. Jeez. You know, again, he, he thinks that annexation is going to mean the end of the uh, monarchy, which he's right. Um, probably full subjugation, possibly the destruction of, of uh, Hawaiian culture. Uh, again, not super far off. But that opportunistic relationship still exists. And, you know, with this foreign land ownership uh, in place now, American companies are starting to buy more property for sugar production to sell back to the United States. Mm -hmm. And they're seeing an opportunity there, right, to make money off of the selling of, of property and uh, to some extent the, the tariffs involved and things like that. It is, however, largely American companies that are producing sugar uh, rather than native Hawaiian plantations that are producing this sugar. Right. Kamehameha IV dies of an asthma attack in 1863. I know we're moving a little bit quickly, but this is a there's a lot coming up that we that we need to get to, mm -hmm. and uh, this can be very easily summarized. Uh, yeah, he dies of an asthma attack, uh, and his brother becomes uh, Kamehameha V. And Kamehameha V, he starts a revival of some traditional practices. Like he, he's interested in looking backward and, and trying to re retain like a, a sense of Hawaiian identity. 
but sometimes in a sort of complex way like it's often at the cost of what we might consider modern ideals or, or like it's you know for example he tries to limit universal suffrage and remove voting rights from lower castes of hawaiian society which is kind of like i are we cheering for this mm. right like it's it's like i understand where he's coming from he's he's reverting to more traditional ideas but it's also disenfranchising people and yeah, it's 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 a it's a real tangle but there, again, he has a, a another nine year reign. It's relatively short, um, and the whole thing, like like his brother, is is sort of characterized by this slow slide towards American business ownership and specifically sugar ownership. Like it's not diverse business that's coming into the island. It's not a general sort of growth of uh, production. It is converting as much land as possible to cash crops it's not like healthy investment mm -hmm. when kamehameha v dies in 1872 he did not have an heir oh good we love a good succession problem around here huh yeah so good news it's built into the constitution that if the king dies with no heir the legislature has the power to appoint a new king uh, they'll vote on it and they'll, they'll appoint a new one. So there is a contingency here. It's not, it's not even close to the worst succession problem we've had. Yeah, I was going to uh, say this, this sounds relatively peaceful. Yeah. It's, it's not too bad this time. Um, yes, I said this time they, uh, <laughs> right? the, the legislature nominates, uh, William, uh, Luna Lilo, who is a grand nephew of Kamehameha the first. So still sort of in the, the lineage, just a little bit different branch. Mm -hmm. They nominate him as king and Luna Lilo is going to be king for a year. Um, oh. basically, yeah. Does he get murked? Tuberculosis. Oh yeah. Just. Like just that. disease nobody's safe man it's it's every time tb at this point in time is is uh it's brutal yeah. like there are a lot of people dying of tuberculosis it's it's um well the the, the trouble with tuberculosis is that uh it's it's very infectious but most people are asymptomatic mm -hmm. um so you have you have no idea uh, most people have no idea that they're spreading it uh, until I think it's like it's it's only like one or two percent actually become symptomatic. But if you at this point in time, if you become symptomatic, that's that there's basically nothing they can do for you. So it's it's yeah, you either have it or you don't, and if you do, you die. It's it's and and that's it, it is worse within indigenous populations, but that that's across the board basically until the invention of uh, antibiotics. The main thing that king luna lilo does uh that we need to pay attention to is that he had an american advisor a guy named charles reed bishop and um bishop was very much like he he had actually married into the royal family like his wife was was native hawaiian mm. um and and he very much saw hawaii as like, like he was still very much like a like american mindset like the best thing for it would be to become part of the united states but he was placed so highly in uh, Hawaiian culture that uh, he was trusted in a way that some of these other business uh, advisors hadn't been quite as much since Kamehameha III. 
Bishop believed that specifically the uh, inlet known as uh, Pu'uloa, which is uh, Pearl Harbor, could be very, very helpful for the Americans. He, he you know, had uh, some experience with the Navy, and he felt that it would be important to the defense of, of the United States uh, if they could field a, a fleet out of there. And Luna Lilo trusted him enough that he was basically leaving Bishop to deal with a lot of his business uh, affairs for him. And so over those couple of months, it got very, very close to him basically just granting Pearl Harbor to the Americans um, until there was popular blowback over the issue uh, from uh, Hawaiians who believed that, you know, if we give that to the Americans, like they're just going to continue taking the rest of the islands. Like that's a like it's very much like a slippery slope argument. Yeah. Which I think in this case is, is probably quite fair. Hindsight. Um, so that deal doesn't go through. Uh, but then Lunalilo dies uh, again without an heir uh, of tuberculosis. This time, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little unclear as to why exactly they chose to go this way. But this time, rather than uh, nominating a new king within the legislature, they decided to open it up as a referendum i.e. all Hawaiians could vote on who would be the next king. Hmm. They end up electing a king, uh, Kalakaua, who was ali'i but not uh, not descended from Kamehameha. And it was a relatively contentious election. The other uh, main candidate was uh, Queen Emma, who had been the wife of Kamehameha IV, mm-hmm. and she had a, a pretty strong following. Like there was some, there was some minor unrest that had to be put down after this election, but um, but Kalakaua becomes uh, becomes king, and he's going to remain king for 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 a while now. Uh, we finally get a little bit more stability. The first thing that he runs into as leader is immense pressure to continue that deal for Pearl Harbor that fell through under Luna Lilo. Essentially, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, government officials were contending that the deal would have gone through if Luna Lilo had continued being king, that he had gone back on some sort of legal obligations to follow through with the deal. Um, just like a lot of pressure, right? Yeah. And that's not exactly true, but like again, this is this is high stakes negotiation. Like they're just they're they're putting the pressure on. Something else sort of happens around this time, though, which is that the sugar trade with the United States had been suffering a little bit the last couple of years, mainly because we're we're post uh, we're post um, Civil War now, and sugar coming in from other places is uh, maybe a little bit better priced than Hawaiian sugar. Also. Uh, it was very well known that the um, the American tariffs on Hawaiian sugar were much, much higher than Hawaiian tariffs on other U.S. goods. In other words, there's a trade imbalance here. Yeah. Once again, we're in a situation where this is maybe not a friendly re- relationship with the United States, but the monarchy is going to try to leverage some good out of it. And what they finally end up with is Kalakaua uh, holds out for a reciprocity agreement with the U.S. And that basically just means we're going to tariff things at the same rates, you know, at a fair rate kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, he signs a treaty with them in 1875, leasing Pearl Harbor to them uh, for seven years in exchange for equal tariffs. And the United States agrees to this. 
between 1875 and 1891, 10 times the Hawaiian land is devoted to sugar plantations. Oh, good. This, yeah, this, this move really uh, increases the amount of sugar being produced in Hawaii. Most of these plantations, the vast majority of these plantations, are owned by what's known as the Big Five American companies. So, once again, we are growing sugar for sale in the American market Mm -hmm. by American companies working Hawaiian soil using Hawaiian labor. Love it. This is where we're at in 1875, 1880. We have have a a lot of um, non-Hawaiian people working in Hawaii, uh, mainly Asian, uh, working on these plantations that are owned by American businessmen. Uh, selling sugar back to the United States under favorable terms, uh, thanks to the U.S. government. Um, a good percentage of the land of, of Hawaii owned by these companies. And these companies, feeling that they have a say in the governance of Hawaii, because they're there, I suppose. Like I, that, that part is, I, I always struggle with it. I mean, I know it's part of the whole... American exceptionalism mindset of yeah. the 19th century. I mean, this is not, it's also not the only, only places it's happening, right? Like in the 1870s, this is the, this is the height of like the United Fruit Company operating in Honduras and stuff like that, right? Like this is just how American business works. You set up in another country where you don't have to worry about government regulation. Um, you set up businesses under extremely favorable terms to businesses, sell back to the United States, and then demand that anything that goes against you be uh, defended by uh, the U.S. Uh, often militarily. Like it's it's just it's it's so brazen. <laughs> it really, really is. Uh, and and Hawaii is really just one more of those in this era. Hmm. Fun. Told you you'd like this one. Americans. Um, in eighteen eighty-seven, Pearl Harbor is leased to the U.S. on an ongoing basis. Uh, they they decide to extend that. This is this is the last section. I, I don't normally tell people the, the titles, but I just th- this one is so. Like I feel like I have to like explain myself that I'm not making this up. Okay. Uh, this is called the Committee of Safety. All right. There's this group of American businessmen. They're all, you know, mainly sugar uh, or sugar adjacent, right? Like, so you have like lawyers and and uh, accountants and things like that who are working in the sugar industry who might not like actually own a plantation, but they're all they're all American businessmen working in Hawaii. Or some of them are technically, you know, they're they're Hawaiian citizens, but they're of American descent and uh, American, you know, friendly to the United States, sort of thing. This there's this group of Americans, and they call themselves the Committee of Safety. They come together with the goal of uh, protecting American interests in Hawaii. Okay. There's just a few of them. You know, at various times, there's nine of them or thirteen of them or whatever. But it's this, you know, fun and formal group that gets together to talk about, uh, you know, like-minded things, like the yeah, Kiwanis or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Many of them just explicitly wanted to make Hawaii part of the United States. Most of them were just targeting annexation as 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 a uh, an end goal. Uh, but like when it starts out, like 
they would, you know, run for local office, um, sit on committees, uh, you know, sort of organize, you know, little, little things here and there to try and like get their feet wet in, in politics. But as they were successful at that, they became more ambitious and started talking about, uh, accelerating the process a little bit. Uh, became friendly with a local militia, you know, oh, things like that. Oh, good. You know, just normal, normal club normal activities. Stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, sorry, you don't know a, you don't know a militia. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the, one of the members, oh, they all, they all have like the worst names. Like it, it is, just the whitest, you know, it's it's very it's very 19th century American business magnate. So this guy is named Lauren A. Thurston. Um, <laughs> I told you. You did. You warned me, but it wasn't ready. Nor, not only is Lauren A. Thurston a member of the Committee of Safety, which that's the most Orwellian nonsense. Yeah, I've heard no in a kidding, long time. right? Not only is he a member, he's also a minister of the Interior. Like this is not just a bunch of guys. Yeah, these are government officials at this point. They're very highly placed. I smell a coup. No. What are you talking about? Um, There is a... Look, I I tried getting into the the justification of all of this, and I was struggling. Essentially what happened was there was a discussion of the potential legalization and licensing of opium in Hawaii in 1887. Um, this is in reaction to some of the sugar trade really slipping in the amount of money it's actually getting to the Hawaiian government. Sure. Um, there's also a wider sort of international context for uh, the legalization of opium. Um, you know, it's but in any case, that's that's what's going on. Yeah. What's Britain up to right now? How are they doing in Asia? Yeah, we're a little past the opium wars, but not a lot. Yeah. Well, it's we've seen opium does numbers there. Sure. Absolutely. Yep. You're 100% right. Um, the point being, it's got nothing to do with the Committee of Safety. Yeah. No, this is this is the this is the clearest like pretext I've I've seen in a long time. They they take this as. Uh, hmm. They feel like they're being threatened, and so they decide to uh, uh, set up an open rebellion in June of 1887. Sorry, threatened? I, I guess. By, by the opium, I guess, what? I suppose. It's, it's like I said, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing some key context here, and if so, I am happy to cor- correct myself. But from what I can tell, they were waiting for any reason to yeah, uh, like start some... a rebellion, and this is the one that they seized on. Sounds like some hot bull. I don't disagree. Um, look, even if we were willing to concede like a real like societal danger of opium legalization or something like that in this context, uh, just for argument's sake, um, they are still American citizens interfering in like local laws. Like that's that's sort of where I come down on this one. Yeah. Um, it, it's just it, it's I don't know. Like I don't I don't. I don't fly to France and yell at them about whatever, you know, new tax they've put in place. That's just not something I do, right? Like, that's not how most people see themselves situated in the world, I guess, is is sort of... I, I guess that's why, to me, the pretext doesn't really matter all that much. Yeah, it's just an excuse that 
enough people will be like, yeah, all right. Yeah, they were not being personally uh, threatened. Their interests were not being uh, directly threatened, um, other than maybe in the normal business ways. But that's the risk you take when you own a business, I suppose. That's how Um, business do. Yeah, pretty much. Anyways, uh, this long story short, over 3,000 militia members march into the capital. And the uh, Hawaiian royalty is not prepared to counter this. Um, especially considering that a lot of the plotters are highly placed in the government. Mm-hmm. Hawaii is not a place where people are like, there's no, there's no like 50,000 person army here, right? Like there's no need for it. Yeah. It's Hawaii. 3000 people is more than enough to hold the capital at this point in time. Yeah. Kalakaua is forced to sign a new constitution. Um, this is colloquially known as the bayonet constitution. Um, for, for obvious reasons, he, in this con- constitution is like, there's a bunch of stuff in here, but it's all basically written by the committee of safety. And it includes things like stripping the king of basically all personal authority, uh, making him like completely a figurehead, um, allowing citizens to elect the upper house, which was previously appointed by the king. So basically turning it into a, an American style Senate rather than a British style Senate. Mm-hmm. It increased the property value needed to vote. So previously, you needed to own some property to vote, and it needed to be worth a certain amount. Mm. They, but in fairness, that is very, very typical for mid to late nineteenth century democracy. Yeah. Um, the increase of the value needed is a way to disenfranchise more voters. Yeah. Um, and then it just also straight up denied voting rights to people of Asian descent which is just full-on racist and uh, disenfranchises, disenfranchises a, a massive percentage of the population of Japan, uh, of, of uh, Hawaii at this point, right? Because of so many uh, laborers coming to fill um, gaps left by native Hawaiians who had died of, of disease. Yep. So, I, I mean, the, the result of this is that it functionally hands a voting monopoly to uh, wealthy Americans, right? Because if they're the only ones that can vote, then they can vote however they want. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I arguably also to wealthy Hawaiians, but I mean, they're often aligned with American business interests at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a mess. It's, it's real, real bad. And Kalakawa dies uh, just a couple years later, four years later in 1891, with this constitution still in place. I mean, th- he, he, was, he was someone who has a very long legacy in Hawaii of being a beloved leader and and it's it he goes out on this right like it's it's kind of it's pretty tragic it's um i don't know it's 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 gross i guess is the the yeah. best word i can come up with that's a good one you know what i mean yep yeah yeah um how do you die oh uh you know what i didn't write that one down he was older though um i i i th- no, he wasn't stroke. That was another one. Um, I can't remember. Bright's disease, apparently. That's U.S. Navy officials listed the official cause of death as Bright's disease. That is not okay. researched by Adams. So don't. That's just me googling. Don't take that one for. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm willing to stand by that. I, I, I trust your googling. <laughs> okay. Uh, fortunately, he had a firm succession plan in place. Mm-hmm. He actually passed rulership to his sister 
uh oh man i gotta get this one right i i practiced this one like straight up lily wokalani lily wokalani it's a tough word man anyway she was uh made queen of uh of hawaii and she will be the last queen of hawaii dearly beloved by hawaiians just absolutely revered she was a firm uh, defender of Hawaiian independence and Hawaiian culture. Uh, she really, really believed in Hawaii in a way that uh, is, I, I personally find very inspiring. Mm. Um, and it is it is very unfortunate that it's it's under her that the uh, that the place loses its independence because um, she deserved so much better. When she came into power, Hawaii was in the middle of like an, an economic crisis uh, in 1890. So the year before uh, that reciprocity treaty that we talked about for sugar mm-hmm. uh, had been had been rescinded. Uh, there was a it wasn't it wasn't a specific thing like it wasn't uh, directly just this one was rescinded sort of thing. William McKinley, uh, the president at the time, was was extremely uh, economically protectionist mm-hmm. and put in a whole bunch of tariffs that uh, uh, basically nullified the reciprocity treaty. Um, but it was, it was, again, it was across the board. It was, it was about the United States, not about the United States trading partners, but it, it put a significant damper on, um, you know, the ability of the, uh, uh, of the Hawaiian state to charge uh, tariffs off of this, these sugar exports, because, People weren't buying the sugar. Um, it was it was pretty difficult. But Lilio Kalani saw the Bayonet Constitution as illegitimate, which sure, um, and intended to rescind it. The thing about constitutional changes is that you kind of need at least one of three things behind it, preferably two. You need authority. So you need to be the sort of person that people will accept a constitutional change from, um, or group of people, uh, as the case may be. Uh, if you don't have that, you need force. So you need to, you know, enforce it on threat of violence. And the third thing that you need is time. You know, the longer a constitutional change has been in place, the more legitimate it appears, regardless of how it was initially put into place. Right. Mm-hmm. Does that all make sense? Yeah. If the Bayonet Constitution had been put in place by Kalakaua himself without threat of violence, the fact that it was so new wouldn't be such a problem, right? Because it was the legitimate king who put it in place uncoerced, right? Sure. Or if this coup had happened much longer ago than four years, it might have just been around long enough that people had gotten used to the idea of it existing, right? Makes sense. But neither of those things is true. And so I would argue that in this case, because the time is so low, uh, the authority of the legitimate queen of Hawaii kind of trumps the force that they had, uh, that the uh, Committee of Safety had brought to bear. Sure. To an extent that they were going to have to meet that authority with more force if they wanted to stick. Mm. Does that analysis sort of track for you? Yeah, I feel you. Okay. The queen was confident that because it had only been four years and because everyone remembered how it had been put in place, she would be able to rescind that constitution basically unilaterally. Just walk up and say, I'm the queen and that doesn't count. 
and probably probably yeah um except that three of her cabinet members uh leaked the fact that she was planning to do this oh good to the committee of safety uh yeah i don't disagree <laughs> this like the move that she was going to make was basically reinstate mon- monarchical power mm-hmm. so put herself back in charge but not just that she was also planning to limit the power of american business interests to interfere in hawaiian politics and she was planning to disenfranchise effectively uh any non-hawaiian residents In other words, up until this point, even if you weren't a Hawaiian citizen, if you were an American business person working in Hawaii, you had the vote, while people who were actual Hawaiian citizens did not. Dang. And she she kind of felt like that should be reversed, and I I don't completely disagree with her. That's kind of bullshit. Yeah, it kind of is. But also, Um, that's the kind of thing what get you kicked out of office by the people who have the money. They sure do. Uh... Community of Safety immediately goes to work. Uh, They have to beat this announcement of the uh, removal of the Constitution of 1887. Mm -hmm. Here's where things get extra sad. Okay. And I know. I know where we're at, and I apologize, but here's this is where we're at. Plans leaked from the Committee of Safety back to the palace that there was a coup coming. Great. They knew it was coming. Love it. And so they locked down the islands on martial law. Mm-hmm. And um, this, uh, his role was the marshal of the kingdom. His name was Charles B. Wilson. He was uh, he was a Hawaiian citizen, though he was he was part of the he was part of the Hawaiian government and a loyalist to the queen. He put out arrest warrants for all thirteen members of the committee of safety. Try and get out ahead of this thing. We know there's a coup coming. Mm-hmm. They weren't enforced. They weren't enforced because there were concerns, including from the queen herself, that enforcing those uh, arrest warrants had the potential to antagonize the government of the United States in such a way that they may be putting Hawaii at risk of invasion. Yeah. Yep. It is too late. Yeah. So... What do you do? Well, the um, you know the the few guards. I think there was about five hundred guards uh, around the palace at any given time, protecting the queen, and they had they had other uh, you know soldiers and law enforcement that were uh, you know they had checkpoints up, things like that, to try and get ahead of a, an actual full on like full blown armed rebellion, right? Yeah. Uh, a, a police officer was was uh, shot by a member of that militia we were talking about, mm-hmm. and again they didn't really escalate it once again because of fears of of uh, bringing the United States into it. So the guards are fighting this purely defensive action where they're afraid to actually take the initiative, but they're just waiting to defend against whatever's coming. It sucks. That's a bad way to fight. Yeah, it's, you, you can't win that. I was going to say, it's not really a winning strategy. Once the guards hit back against the the, um, the militia, who, by the way, was like openly transporting arms for the for the use of uh, armed rebellion. Like that's that's what this this stop was. The, the cops stopped them. Mm-hmm. They had a bunch of rifles in the back. They were affiliated with the committee of safety 
and the militia shot the cops and they still like nothing happened to them <laughs> that's how afraid they were to actually do anything right oh boy but the committee knowing that this was eventually going to come to a head um made just the most cowardly play i've ever heard and they petitioned uh john l stevens who was a who was a um a minister in the u.s government for u.s protection because they feared for their lives and for um non-combatant u.s lives and u.s property and stevens was sympathetic to the cause he wanted to see hawaii uh, annexed mm -hmm. and he agreed to help them so the uss boston was nearby and they landed 162 marines and sailors heavily armed and i want to be clear not a single u.s soldier uh sorry not a single u.s marine or sailor uh fired a shot none of them were involved in any action whatsoever what they did do was go stand around you know the homes of committee members uh american businesses and uh stand there with loaded guns mm -hmm. what what do you do what do you do when you're the royal guard here because now it's not just about there's an uppity american businessman who's trying to overthrow our government like that should be that should be an easy arrest right yeah now you have u.s marines yeah there is a not invading force but a force that can easily invade yeah and i mean we're we're getting we're getting woo, we're, we're really splitting hairs on the right on the term invade right yeah. it's just mm. <laughs> but like this is this is this is what the u.s marines were up to in this period like usually in south america instead but they're just showing up to protect banana companies <laughs> like that's is what they do so um anyways the committee is feeling safe enough now because they know that the Hawaiians don't want to get in a shooting war with the United States. Yeah. Um, that they just sort of put out like essentially a press release saying uh, the monarchy is over now. <laughs> we are hereby de declaring the uh, the Republic of Hawaii. The queen is abdicated and uh, is no longer the ruler of Hawaii. And that's that's how it is cool and she accepted because the alternative was out and out war with the united states and she didn't want to risk her people in that yeah it's not a choice at that point right it's like a no i hate this all. but here we go yeah absolutely you know, a, uh, a, a committee-adjacent uh, businessman and lawyer, a guy named, again, get ready for this one, uh, Sanford B. Dole, uh, became the, uh, the first president of Hawaii. Nearly his entire, entire cabinet was uh, committee members. Uh, the entire government was just American businessmen, or, or, or nearly, at least. Sweet. Uh, at first, uh, Grover Cleveland, the, the current president, didn't like completely opposed the coup there was a there was a very impassioned speech in which he basically said like guys this is clearly an invasion like just because they didn't shoot doesn't make it not an invasion yeah it was like it was a very reasonable speech <laughs> given everything else that's happening here but he was he was firmly against what was going on here and she and initially 
um, tried to help with the reinstatement of the monarchy. But in a predictably disappointing manner, Lilio Kalani didn't play nice enough. I guess one of the one of the requests from the U.S. government for for help was essentially amnesty for all of the committee members. Yeah, and she went, "No, I want to seize their property, and I'm considering like capital punishment." Yeah, this was an insurrection. Like, like Hello? what are you talking Hello? about? Hello, did you? Were and, you? Are we watching the same feed? And Grover Cleveland essentially went, "Well, if you're not going to be reasonable, then I'm not going to help you." Yeah. Um. Thanks, bud. Thanks for nothing. Uh, the administration officially recognized the legitimacy of the Republic in 1894. 1895, uh, there was an attempt uh, counter uh, counter revolution. It's called the Wilcox Uprising. It was a four day unsuccessful attempt to restore the monarchy. And when that failed, then Lilio Kalani uh, officially uh, abdicated the throne and became a private citizen of Hawaii. Uh, I believe she lived until 1917. Hawaii wasn't immediately annexed, mostly because of the the conflict with uh, Cleveland. Yeah. But in 1897, there was a joint resolution in Congress to to uh, um, annex it as a U.S. territory um, under under President William McKinley, who uh, I would like to point out this is the same administration that goes through the uh the spanish american war right 1897 to 1898 we talked about mm-hmm. um you know driving spain out of uh, out of cuba um something that's really interesting about the the spanish american war in general is that while the war is going on in spain a bunch of just sort of enterprising private citizens go and take over several other places <laughs> that are not cuba okay like they just go. So this is when Puerto Rico becomes I was just uh, US say, territory. This, this is how we got Puerto Rico. We, it's also how we got you know. the. Uh, it's also how they got Guam. Yeah, that's which tracks. is. I, I that's a that's a that's quite the left turn that you made on your way to Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> to get to Guam. Go look, um, go so look like, it up on a map. It's um. Mm-hmm. Got a little a lost. Ways. Got a little lost. You're on the wrong side of the. Wrong side of the country. Wrong ocean. And wrong ocean. Yeah. Wrong hemisphere. Uh, many, many time zones away. Uh, and this is also, I believe, where you get uh, American involvement in the Philippines. It's like as far, it's further away from Hawaii than it is fr- than, than Hawaii is away from uh, the States. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Just right yeah, beside, right beside is... Cuba, though. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, like there's this, there's this, I mean, you know, there's, there's always been this sort of like, oh, you know, the United States isn't uh, an imperial power. It's not expansionistic like the Europeans. And yet they're like, there's a, there's this period in the late 19th century century where they just sort of stop even pretending like they had been before and they just go ahead and take a bunch of places. Mm -hmm. And so the, the annexation of Hawaii is happening in the exact same conversation as these other places. So it's just one of several. And so it just sort of sneaks in there. Yeah. And uh, it's formally annexed in 1900, and Sanford B. Dole, the president, uh, becomes the first governor of the territory of Hawaii. That is the, that is the reward for writing up. He, he is the person who wrote up the um, 
uh, the the statement uh, declaring the the Republic of Hawaii. Uh, he wasn't part of the committee, but he he was good friends with all of them, and that's what he got for it. Uh. And then it remained a territory until 1959, when it was finally made a U.S. state. So that's uh, that. That's the, the that's the end of the Kingdom of Hawaii. It's um, I don't know. I, I I think I'm I think I'm most struck by the fact that um, a lot of times when I'm talking about you know uh, Western uh, interactions with indigenous societies, it's it's earlier in the timeline in a way that a lot of the stuff that these indigenous societies get hit with is they're just sort of blindsided by it it's it's very early on in contact they have no idea that these things are going to be tried you know legally militarily what have you yeah the hawaiians saw the coming tried to stop it and Mm -hmm. still couldn't that's what strikes me about it they have those lessons in front of them yeah and there's still there's still these little things that that get tried out and and end up being successful for you know for the most part for the united states um it's it's uh i don't know it's a real tragedy i i know um you know since the since the 60s there's there's been sort of a resurgence of interest in hawaiian culture and and uh there's even a, a small hawaiian independence movement that exists and things like that like there's 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 some interest there but like yeah i i don't know it's it's <laughs> It feels like such a such an avalanche, right? Like it looks like it's moving so slowly, and then you get caught up in it, and off you go. Yeah, um, they're just they're just kind of done all of a sudden. Um, yeah, I, I I was I was really interested to dig into this one because I knew that Hawaii had been an independent kingdom, and then you know that it was a U.S. state, and. The definitely some stuff happened in between. You know, I was I was vaguely familiar with uh, with some of the some of the later stuff, but you know, knowing a little bit more about those early interactions with the Europeans and how quickly or how early on um, Hawaiian leaders attempted to get out ahead of the threat of colonization, um, it really struck me just how futile it ended up being. I suppose. <sighs> So on that on that happy note, yeah, um, that's that's the story of the Kingdom of Hawaii. What did you What did you think? What are your What are your reactions? I know you're going to be angry. So like, I knew it was going to end this way, right? It's just sure. I don't know. It's 2022, and I'm as much as I am the person who is always outraged about this. Shit, I'm just like, oh, f- here we go again. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you'd, you'd almost be surprised if it did actually work out. Yeah. In, their favor in in any regard yeah um but beyond the beyond the frustration what did you uh what did you think was there anything uh particularly surprising for you was there uh anything uh of note that uh, that really struck you uh you know me i i'm always fascinated by the the Kame, uh, the kamehamehas of the world uh mm-hmm. his story was really interesting mm-hmm. his yeah little journey around the islands mm-hmm that was cool like that yeah it's interesting how much that coincided with early european contact and how much uh european contact informed that to to a certain extent yeah right grab a couple cannons off of a sailboat and take over a chain of islands yeah 
Yeah, for sure. It's it's I don't know. It's it's very unique. You, usually stuff like that is already long since resolved or or much further down the line. It's not quite as contemporaneous uh, for the most part. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, as I said at the beginning, it's been a it's been a couple months since I had a chance to record one of these, and uh, it was was it was it was I was a little worried we'd be a little bit rusty. So I'm. Uh, I feel like the rust wasn't nearly as bad as you might have played it up to be. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, that's me in a nutshell, I suppose. But uh, if uh, if I was gonna gonna kick it off with anybody, I, I, I was glad to be able to to do so with you. So uh, thanks for thanks for coming on as always. Mm, thanks for having me. In 1993, 100 years after the Republic of Hawaii was declared by American businessmen, a joint bill called the Apology Resolution acknowledged the role of the American government in the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy and the removal of the Hawaiian kingdom's right to self-determination. While the exact meaning of the resolution and its legal ramifications are still debated nearly 30 years later, it is notable that apologies for regime change are extremely rare. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I say that Americans traveling to Hawaii would have to sail around Cape Hope, which is wrong. The southernmost point of South America is called Cape Horn. It seems I got it mixed up with the Cape of Good Hope, which is the southernmost point of Africa and would make for a much longer trip. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed here, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.